Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin with prayer this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We ask that your spirit will be with us. We ask that your spirit will go out and, and impact the hearts and minds of the people around this world that are open to receive this truth and that the message may go forward. You might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing the last lesson in the quarterly discipleship, and the title this week is The Cost of Discipleship. And again, before we get into the lesson, I just want to read another email we received. It says, I've been ordering Come and Reason materials and sharing them for a few years, thanks to my Uncle Martin and Aunt Antoinette, um, that introduced us to the ministry several years ago. So, so many have been blessed. Another couple in our church has also been so blessed that they have ordered the DVD several times over the last few months for all church members and many other folks though we got some flack from our pastor. (laughs) Imagine that. And we continue to run out. I have to share the following message I received from friends many states away that I sent the God in Your Brain DVD to. These folks have been uh, SDAs their entire life and worked for many self-supporting ministries of the church. Here's the uh, email. Wow, I'm so glad you shared this with me. We need to have a phone conversation when I get home. It's too much to write here, but these are an amazing need for all of us to see. It is transforming. I have profusely thanked you, um, but you have no idea the depths to which it is touching my family, me included. Wish I had heard this long time ago. This is only one of the many friends that are so blessed and excited about the message. And the fact that you send all this free, I have had many that are touched by that fact and have started ordering them to share as well. We will continue to support and uplift Come and Reason in our prayers. The blessings are evident in the many hearts that are finally being able to heal. Thank you so much. So this is just a sample of we get these every week in, in letter and email form from around the, around the world. All right, Sabbath lesson. The title for the lesson is The Cost of Discipleship. Should we indoctrinate people before we baptize them, or should we do as they did at Bible times when they were convicted of the Holy Spirit, we baptized right on the spot. And uh, she challenged us that before we baptize, we ought to point out the cost of discipleship. And maybe I confused things last week when, we, when I was trying to make the distinction between um, indoctrination, you know, okay, they, they've, they've accepted Jesus, now we want to put them through six to 12 months of indoctrination before we baptize, versus the you know, understanding what it really means to your life to give your heart to Jesus, which I think is a little different. So the question to you, how do we strike that balance? The balance between when, when, you're, when you're evangelizing, sharing the gospel, the Holy Spirit moves on somebody's heart, they're convicted, they want to give their life to Christ, between baptizing right then versus delaying it for months and years while you indoctrinate uh, and helping them understand what the real cost to their life, what it means to give their heart. What is the, where's the balance there? Any thoughts? I think it's similar to what you mentioned last week, where we have joined together the joining of a body or a denomination with joining the family of God, where, in my opinion, in actuality, they're two different things. And if they're convicted by the Holy Spirit and they're converted and they want to be baptized in the family of God, that's an immediate thing. But joining a, a specific church or a specific denomination has different criteria and requirements. You know what I'm saying? It sure. require different behaviors and things like that, and that's a separate event. So you might like to see those things de- 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 decoupled. Yes. Baptize at one time, vote into membership at a different time. Okay. You know, Christ, Christ touched on this when he said, you know, the foxes have their holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He... I think he was trying to weed out the folks that were following along just for the, the entertainment aspect of it. And, okay. and I certainly think it's, it's necessary that we make clear to them that the decision they've made is not a guarantee for prosperity. It's not a guarantee for long life. It's not a guarantee for anything. There will be a cost associated. That's, that, that's a nice segue into the first paragraph. It says... Um, Throughout history, nameless millions willingly sacrificed their lives for Christ. They were imprisoned, tortured, even executed. Millions have foregone employment, suffered ridicule, endured expulsion from family, and persevered through religious persecution rather than forsake Christ. Only God knows the full extent of the suffering that his faithful ones have endured. And I thought about that. What? No doubt there have been millions who have suffered for Christ, no doubt. But what about the six million Jews? in Nazi Germany, or the Muslims killed by the so-called Christians during the Crusades. 
or the 80 million Hindus killed by the Muslims between 1000 and 1500 AD, or the witch burnings in the colonies here in the U.S., or the Protestants killed by Catholics and the Catholics killed by Protestants in the Reformation. And, and I guess the question I'm asking is, does being persecuted set one apart as being on God's team? Do we often, though, have that idea? If you're being persecuted, it must be because you're righteous. It doesn't necessarily mean so, does it? Does a lack of persecution, being blessed, set you apart as being on God's team? No. No. So then what can we what conclusions can we with confidence draw when persecution is happening? Someone doesn't like us. Yes. And what about the characters of those involved? Can we draw anything of confidence? How about Jesus said in Luke 6.45, the good man brings forth good of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings forth evil of the evil stored up in him, for, uh, for out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. So when persecution happens, can we say with confidence that those who are persecuting others, the persecutors, are not operating on God's methods and principles? Can we say that with confidence? Yes. Yes, regardless of the who's being persecuted. And this is quite telling because at the end of time, as we know, as we believe eschatologically, there's going to be a time of persecution again, and it's going to be done in the name of Christ again, in the name of God, in the name of holiness, in the name of righteousness, that justice requires that we do these things. Take it the next step with me. Is it godly if we were to take people and burn them at the stakes for their false beliefs and their rejection of Christ? They're, they're Muslims, they won't accept Jesus. Is it godly to torture them? Would it be godly for God to do that? But how about we teach that? Do you ever hear teachings, if you don't accept Jesus, he's going to torture you? If it's not godly for us to do it, how's it godly for him to do it? You follow the the point there? If it is our righteous being, it is finished chapter, though, the coercion is only used by Satan, coercion is not used by God. Exactly right. I love that perspective. Coercive power is found only under Satan's government. God's principles are not of this order. His principles are truth and love, mercy and goodness. Yeah, this is exactly right. The righteous, in other words, we can tell the character of the persecuted by their responses and their reactions. And from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Do we respond with forgiveness, with grace, with kindness? Or do do we respond with the same venom that is being perpetrated upon us? That That is not a human response. When somebody is treating you evil and you respond with grace... That's an evidence of a supernatural power working in your heart. That's not a natural human response. Our, our current hearts want to respond with the eye for the eye response. Somebody hurts us, we want to hurt them. Isn't it true? So when you see some other's response of grace and forgiveness, then you can see there's a, there's a work of, of, a, of a higher power at work there. So what does set one apart as being on God's side? I'm going to, I'm going to throw some of the obvious Ones that you're going to go, no, that's not it, out. But then maybe it gets a little trickier. Being on God's true side. Membership in a church organization. Baptism by immersion. Partaking of communion. Paying tithe. There's an organization, I won't mention it, but if you don't pay tithe and bring in your tax receipts, you can't get certain documents that allow you to take certain rituals in that organization. Did you know that? It's a criterion, yeah. How about claiming the blood of Jesus as your payment for sin? Is that what sets you apart? How about this one? Acknowledging one's sin before God. Does that set the righteous and the wicked apart? Judas threw down his knowledge. And aren't we told at the end of time that all the wicked will acknowledge before God? That doesn't set them apart either. How about being reborn, having a new heart, trusting God so that one dies to the motives of fear and selfishness and recreated within by the Holy Spirit? Yeah, that's, that's the key. Third paragraph says, Despite the promises of the so-called prosperity preachers, luxurious automobiles and financial gain are not automatic embellishments afforded to believers. <clears throat> Any thoughts about that? The self-aggrandizement is not uh, evidence of the unselfish heart. So, is there anything wrong with wealth? No. Is money the root of all evil? No. What is? The love of that you guys are so smart. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. With what did Satan tempt Christ in his third temptation? All the wealth of the earth, wasn't it? 
All the wealth and power of the earth he was tempted with. That was the third temptation. And what did Jesus say, not at that moment, but at another point in his ministry? He said, what good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, it forfeits his soul? If you think about that, when, when think about your life is on the line. Do you really care about your, your retirement plan at that point? Your car? Your house? Your coin collection? I mean, really, all the things that we seem to care so much about. When your life is on the line, do those things really matter? Are there some things worth dying for? What could be worth dying for? Anybody throw out some ideas? What could be worth dying for? Truth? Someone else. Someone else. Okay, certainly someone else. I think that's probably the the foremost in most of our hearts. We give our life for somebody we love to protect them, right? Our kids, family members. And and that, that kind of love that you feel for your kids. Do you understand God wants us to love each other that much? He even wants us to love our enemies that much. Do you, re- do you see how far away we are from that goal? I know I am. I'd like to be there, but I'm not. Yes. That's the purpose of training for in the military, is to make yourself a part of a team for which you die for your brother. That's exactly right. And most people don't understand that what drives, what, what is key to successful military action is not hate, it's love. The cohesion, they call it in military cohesion or unit morale. And the higher the cohesion, the higher, tighter the morale, the tighter those bonds of, of brotherly affection and, and, and confidence and trust for each other. And that is what causes soldiers to go out under fire, not for the political value, not for their, their loved ones back home across an ocean somewhere, but for their friends who are in the foxhole next to them. That's what they do. That's exactly right. How about standing up for principle? I guess somebody meant, probably meant that when they said truth. But what about the riches and the cars and the houses and the stocks and the gold? Do we, do we want to die for that? Generally, most of the time, not. Sometimes people, though, foolishly do. Foolishly do. <clears throat> jump, so do we ever overvalue riches? So jump to Thursday's lesson with me, with this idea in mind. Second paragraph, it says, In a sense... Both being a disciple and a disciple maker can be boiled down to one thing, a better resurrection. We follow Christ because we have the promise, the hope of redemption, of a new life in a new world, with one, one without sin, suffering, and death. At the same time, because we have been given this hope, this promise made certain of the life, death, resurrection, and high priestly ministry of Jesus, we seek to point others to the same hope, the same promise. In the end, before the great controversy is over, we will either face the first or the second resurrection. We know for sure which is the better one. What else matters other than not only being in that resurrection ourselves, but doing whatever we can to lead others to it as well? What do you... Pardon? the life of God, even if this life is all there is, it's still worth it. I like what you're saying. This is the the point I'm trying to ask. Do we follow God for the hope of reward or the threat of punishment? Is that the reason we follow God? Because we love Him. And for the relationship of today. Because, Because there's no better way to live. Right There's no better way to live, is what she's saying. It's the, it's the most best way to live because of love for God, because of what was it you said? Peace for today. The peace for today, the relationships we have. You see, these are different motives than the hope of reward. And what do you think about this idea of the hope of reward and the avoidance of punishment? Yes. In one of the texts of the day of the week, it was talking about Christ's statement about no one who has given up family or home or whatever will not in this life get much more. But they'll get a hundredfold more in the next. Right. And persecutions. But it was, you know, even in this life, you will get family, truly, a large family. So, the. If I could just say that this is actually the cause of persecution, Sir Thomas More argues that if we kill a few people so that the rest of us don't burn in hell, that is going to save eternity for all these people. So it's okay to burn a few people to save the rest of us. Yes. The the uh, what is it? The the good of the of the many outweigh the the, the need of the few. 
Okay, this is a classic Vulcan argument in Star Trek. <laughs> you ever watch it? <laughs> okay, yes, Russell. Take her point a step further, and she said it's a better way to live. Why is it a better way to live? Yeah, we're gonna get there. We're gonna get there. We're gonna get there. So, is the kingdom of God? done good service. We do good service to the kingdom of God when we promote a message that emphasizes either avoiding punishment or seeking eternal reward. Do we, we go out and evangelize with avoid the, the eternal flames, avoid the beast, the mark of the beast, cause God, and, and get this, get this reward because you're going to have uh, mansions in heaven and all this good stuff. It, it, do we do the kingdom of God good service when we promote it that way? No, there's a qu- comment in the back. Yes. From one of our online listeners. Yes, one of our online listeners says a transformation of character here and now is the reward. Um, and then the healing of relationships is another reward. And then another one of our um, online listeners said, if you're worrying about which resurrection you'll be in, isn't that still a focus on yourself? That's a perfect timing. My question was, these avoidance of punishment or focusing on reward, to what motive does it appeal in the heart? Self. It's a self-centered motive. So we're preaching under the guise of righteousness, selfishness. That's what this is. It is, it, it's feeding our selfish, selfish need. Here's a quote from, uh, from a, I like going through some of the historic documents of our church, and, and here's some from more than 100 years ago. First one's out of a book called Patriarchs and Prophets. Love to God is the very foundation of religion. To engage in his service merely from the hope of reward or the fear of punishment would avail nothing. Now get this next sentence. Open apostasy would not be more offensive to God than hypocrisy and mere formal worship. Did you hear that? Open apostasy is not more offensive than hypocrisy and formal worship. In other words, we are doing this because we want to avoid punishment and we want to get a reward. Our hearts don't love him. We're going through this for what we can get out of it. That's offensive. How much, how much do we teach our kids this? How much do we raise and indoctrinate people in the church that the reason you do this is to avoid hell and to earn your place in heaven? Here's another one. Desire of Ages 480. It is not the fear of punishment or the hope of everlasting reward that leads the disciples of Christ to follow him. They behold the Savior's matchless love revealed throughout his pilgrimage on earth from the manger of Bethlehem to Calvary's cross and the sight of him attracts, it softens and subdues the soul. Love awakens in the heart of the beholders, they hear his voice and they follow him. This is what I said earlier. It is a love thing. And think about your human relationships when you fell in love. Think about when you fell in love with the person that you, you spend your life with. When you fell in love, were you wanting to be with that person and, and do things with them for the hope of reward or the fear that if you didn't, they'd punish you? If, if you did, I'm sorry for you. <laughs> See, the emphasis on hope of reward and fear of punishment, these are fear-based motives. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. Fear is part of the infection of sin. Even the appeal to reward is a fear-based motive. Because what it does when they promote the reward, they're implying that if you don't do this, you'll miss the reward. And so it incites a fear of what I'm going to miss. It's fear-based, which is self-centered. Yes? I'm not so certain. Um, when, when you were attracted to the person who you married or whatever, the, the, it wasn't the relationship instantly that attracted you. It was the package. Okay? And that you found it attractive. Now, that was not the thing that holds it together. and That's not what the relationship is all about. But that was the initial attraction. Well, I appreciate he's pointing out something. And that is, in our human sphere, in a world that's infected by sin, there are a lot of different motives for people to get into relationships. One, which would be a healthy love. Others can be various counterfeits to love, including sensual desire, personal aggrandizement, I'm attracted because this person's pretty and it's going to make me feel better about me unconsciously, ego validation. There's lots of reasons we're initially attracted. You're right, besides love. But then it can potentially grow into healthy love if we're mature and we're, and we're moving in, in the spirit. But a lot of people never grow in, into healthy love. And so they come to see me then. Yes. <laughs> but you, would you say that 
being attracted to Christ's life here on earth, helping the poor, loving, helping, not asserting power, etc., etc., would become an attraction that would cause you to want to learn more about if it's presented in the right way. See, it depends on which lens. This goes back to those law lens. When you have the designer protocols and you present Jesus through that and show how he was operating to put people in harmony and how life is constructed this way, this becomes beautiful and you see grace. And, and when you understand he has all power and he doesn't use his power to, to coerce and pressure, he uses his power to heal and uplift, it becomes beautiful. But when you have the imposed law model and said he had to do this in order to, to, to live perfectly so his life would be sinless so that he could present himself to his dad so his dad could kill him to pay our pain then it's not so beautiful anymore, is it? Oh, Jesus loves us, but boy, God still has to, you know, kill. And we have this ugliness woven in. So it really does depend. His life, rightly understood, absolutely wins us. But it's presented in ways that people don't necessarily find beauty in it. So, what should we tell someone? The reasons I think Russell was getting to earlier, the reasons to follow Jesus? How about because there's simply no better way to live? Is what was said earlier. It's sensible. When you understand, this is the way life operates. This is where, I mean, is it a hard argument to make why it's good to brush your teeth? It's not a hard argument to make. It's an easy argument to make. Same reason, principally, why is it why we follow Jesus? Because this is where we find peace. This is where health is. This is where happiness is. This is where harmony is. This is where we avoid guilt and shame and, and anxiety and fear and, and all these things. I mean, it, it's really, truly where health is. Rightly understood. But when we present the entire gospel message as the either earn, uh, you know, seeking of a reward or the avoidance of punishment, why do you do what you do? Well, because if I don't, God will have to punish me. Many people operate on this level. This is what Paul refers to in Romans, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 5, the end of chapter 5 and going into chapter 6, when he says, the immature, you ought to be on milk, excuse me, meat, but you're still on milk. Those still on milk are not acquainted with righteousness. They don't know what righteousness is. And then he goes on to say what this is. You're still focused on acts that lead to death. You're still behavior focused. You're focused on the right and the wrong, the do's and the don'ts. You don't understand what true righteousness is, which is transformation and living a principle-based life. Hand somewhere. Yes? But again, if you start at the basis of where we all started, which is ultimate selfishness, don't we have to attract... Doesn't, I mean, why is this stuff in the Bible? Why, why, do, why does God talk about, or Jesus talk about, you know, heaven and, and you know, mansions and your rooms or, you know, this great future life? Because I feel like, you know, to some degree... As the doctor was saying, you know, you have to appeal to people at their very basic level of knowledge, which may be pure selfishness. So you're first attracted by, you know, potential gain or whatever, or, or maybe out of fear. But then as you get to know, you know, so, so, you know, again, we have to meet everybody's level of understanding. And some of that's very basic, which is, hey, I, I, I want to gain. Sure. So when you, when, when in, in the medical practice, when you, teach someone the principles and laws of health and how to live in harmony with them so they will stop even a de- you know having cavities so they brush and floss or or whatever it might be is there a personal gain and benefit from f- to them for doing that are you still appealing to some benefit to them sure there's a benefit there okay and we are to love others as we love ourselves so there is a healthy form of self love that's not self selfish in its right, in its that's what you progress to yeah. but ultimately it's it's about me. Sure. And then as I understand much better, it's like, wow, it's really not about me. I get this. It's, it's more about others. And then you can grow and, and you, you move to different levels of understanding. I think that's a good point. Yes. Go ahead. The levels of obedience as well. Yes. The levels of obedience we've talked about. Yes. Children obey. Why? Small children. To avoid punishment. To avoid punishment. And as they grow, you know, this is a classic. Why do you brush your teeth? Because my mom has a rule, and if I don't, she'll punish me. And then they grow a little older. Well, because I love my mom, and I don't want to disappoint her. She's been so good to me, I don't want to hurt her feelings. Then they grow a little older, because it makes so much sense. And how would you feel about your college student going off at 21 to college and in the dorm brushing their teeth, and they said, somebody says, what are you doing? Well, my mom has a rule. And if I don't, and she knows I didn't brush, she'll punish me. Would you be happy with this child? Or if they said, well, I love my mom, and you know, if I don't, she finds out it'll hurt her. See, many Christians operate like this. God has rules, and if you don't do them, he has to punish. Well, you know what? God's done so much for me through Jesus, and I love him, and I don't want to disappoint and let him down. 
But he's waiting for us to actually grow up. As he said in John fifteen fifteen. I no longer call you servants. Rather, I call you friends because servants don't understand their master's business. He wants us to do this because it makes the most sense. We agree in it's understanding. Yes, Russell. If you have time, would you mind reviewing the, the stages of moral development? Because I think it, it fits in perfectly here. Yeah, this, he's, he's referring to Kohlberg's stages of moral development. The first stage of moral development, according to Kohlberg, is punishment and obedience. Stage one is punishment and obedience. And if you look at the progression of plan of salvation of the children of Israel, you'll notice this progression. Punishment of obedience, you, you, what makes something right and wrong? It's wrong if you, if you do something and get punished for it. It's right if you avoid punishment. And so this, was the, this is a slave mentality. What makes the behavior of a slave right? If his master blesses, says good job, or if it's wrong if the master punishes. This is the Nazi uh, uh, soldiers at the Nazi uh, concentration camps. Their argument was, we had orders, and if we didn't, we'd get punished. Very basic uh, punishment and obedience, level one of moral development. Level two, instrumental change, which is basically marketplace exchange. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Do unto others as they do unto you. This is the eye for an eye mentality. You notice the children of Israel came out as slaves, and what made something right or wrong is if you, if you got punished for it. If you didn't get punished, then it's not wrong. And very quickly, they were having problems, and so God moved them to moral development number two, and with Moses, gave them the eye for the eye, tooth for a tooth. We're, we're now up to, to level two. And then level three, which is interpersonal conformity, right is, right is conformity to the behavioral expectations of one's society, peers, or individuals. In other words, everybody's doing it, so if everybody else is doing it, it must be the right thing. This is how you tell. It's consensus of the group in which you're in. And you see Israel moved into this group when they wanted to be like the nations around them. And they wanted to have kings because all the nations had kings, so it must be the right thing to do, and we're the ones on the out because we're not right. So they moved into level three. And then level four is law and order. Respect for rules, laws, and properly instituted defined authority. Defense of uh, the given social and institutional order is, is uh, made for its own sake. Justice in this, uh, in this level defer- refers normally to criminal and forensic justice. Justice demands that the wrongdoer be punished and that he pay his debt to society. A good day's pay for a good day's work, so you get your reward for your good work, but you also get proper punishment or demerit for breaching any of the laws or rules. That's level four. Uh, level five is prior rights and social contract. What this means is moral action is a spe- in a specific situation is not defined by reference to a checklist of rules, but from a logical ac- application of universal principles. Um, so, um, the statement, justice demands punishment, which is self-evident under number four, is just as self-evidently nonsense under stage five. Retributive punishment is neither rational nor just because it does not remove the right, pro- excuse me, promote the rights and welfare of the individual. It doesn't heal the broken that was done and it doesn't fix the defect in the, in the criminal who broke the law. So, why did Jesus, so what Jesus tried to teach them, there was no need to punish the woman caught in adultery. They were at level four, and they said, she broke the rule, and the rule says you've got a stoner. He was operating at a higher level and said, hey, he's without sin, cast the first stone. And he tells her, I don't condemn you, go and sin no more. Go and stop engaging in these behaviors that are so destructive. And then uh, level six uh, universal ethical principles. An individual who reaches this stage acts out of universal principles based on equality and worth of all beings. Persons are never means to an end, uh, but are. Um, uh, but this is the golden rule. Basically, do unto others you'd have them do unto you, valuing and, and uh, living upon principle. This is the level that Jesus operated at. This is the New Testament church, where people sacrificed themselves for others. They wouldn't fight. They gave their lives as martyrs. Um, Let's see here. And then you can look at the stage theory in atonement. Stage one, in, in the atonement model, man sinned and offended God, and God responded with angry vengeance to take the life of Jesus. This is how people in stage one see it. Stage two, God somehow struck a bargain with the devil, a marketplace exchange. This is uh, where Christ's life was paid as a ransom to the devil, and uh, in trade, the devil releases his hostages from hell, and they get to go to heaven. But because Jesus didn't sin, that Jesus basically con the devil, and he gets to come back too. You can see this actually depicted in C.S. Lewis's um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, in which the lion 
uh, goes and gives his life to to the 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 witch of the uh, the winter witch or the witch and uh, and and rescues the son of Adam who was being held hostage and then after he dies he comes back to life and is set free too so he's making a, a mark, marketplace exchange that's level two level three and four um, is law and order law must be kept man broke the law someone had to pay the penalty the wages of sin is death Jesus paid the penalty and the integrity of the law is maintained level five and six is that he demonstrated. The reality of how the universe runs, he revealed God's true character, exposed Satan as a liar and fraud, and actually, in his own personhood, fixed what sin did to humanity and, and restored humanity back to God's original ideal. So, anyways, that that help? Thank you. And we'll get back to our, our lesson for today. Is anyone else astounded by the disconnect of this paragraph and Thursday's lesson between... What is being written now that we're studying and what our founding documents portrayed? I mean, it's almost a polar opposite. This, this is this, uh, this is what we've been saying. You get the, the, the Burgundy DVD out there. We show a lot of current thoughts that are contradictory to our founding thoughts on many things. And, and this is one of the frustrations, I think, because we want to present a message that when our founder said in Christ's Object Lessons um, 415, I think it was, that the final message of mercy to lighten the world for Christ's return is the truth about God's character of love. But what's happened is that we've, we've instead taken an imperial dictator view of God to the world Christianity has. And Adventism has taken that same imperial dictator God, but we just added the Sabbath and the state of the dead and the sanctuary to it, but we still got the same imperial dictator God. Yes? Was the message to Adam and Eve while they were in the garden the same as the, the message to them after they had to leave the garden. I'm not sure I'm following your question. Was there, a, was there a difference in God's message to man after man sinned? Only because of the need of man was different, so they need to have a different message in that sense. There was no difference in God's message about who he was, but man was in a different position, so they needed a message of hope, a message of a redeemer. They didn't need to know that that a redeemer was coming. They didn't need to know that they could be healed from a problem they didn't yet have. So in the sense that now they had a problem that they needed redemption and healing from, that message was added, but it's still a consistent message with God's character that never changed. God's demands do not change. No, yeah. See, the the demands of the law cannot the law cannot be changed to meet the sinner in his in his sin. So God's law didn't change. Why? Because God's law are the protocols upon which life. It'd be like saying you can't change the law of respiration to meet a person who's trapped underwater. You can't do it. To change the law of respiration means we destroy life as it currently exists. So God's law is how life is built. We are deviant from that design in the terminal condition. To change the law destroys life as God designed it. He can't change the law. We've got to change those outside the law back into harmony with the law. So God, God's law design protocols didn't change, but man was deviant, and now there's a message of how I, how I, as God, can take the initiative to heal and restore you back into harmony with the design. On Sunday's lesson, it asks us to read Luke 12, 49-53. It says, this is Jesus speaking, I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is completed. Do you know, do you think I came to bring peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, and mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. This is Jesus speaking. What fire? I've come to bring fire. Was he speaking of combustion or something else? Combustion or something else? Is the fire Christ speaks of here different from the fire in the end of time that consumes sin, or is it the same fire? Let's see if we can add some insight from this same conversation but written by matthew this is matthew chapter 10 verse 34 through 49 do not suppose i have come to bring peace to the earth i did not come to being priests but a sword notice luke says fire matthew says sword i've come to turn a man against his father a daughter against her mother a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law the man's enemies will be members of his own household anyone who loves his father and mother more than me is not worthy of me anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me and anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me Whoever finds his life will lose it, 
And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What do you think? What is this idea of a sword? He came to bring a sword. Hey, what's going on with this? I brought a sword, but yet when Peter whips out a sword and whacks off the ear of the high priest's servant, Jesus says, put away your sword. What's going on? How can he say I brought a sword, but he tells Peter to put away a sword? Sword of truth. Ah, okay. See what she said? She said the sword of truth. Before we get to that text, let me throw one more text at you. This is out of Revelation chapter 19, 19 and 20. Listen carefully, 19 to 21. Listen carefully, particularly listen for the sword. Then I saw the beasts and the kings and the earth and the armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. Who's the rider on the horse? Christ, okay. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the lake, uh, the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. Well, that sounds like God's going to use his power to hurt people, doesn't it? What do you, unless you understand the meaning, what do you think the meaning is? Think about it. Who's the rider? Christ. Do you think when he comes back, he's going to have a large piece of metal sticking out of his mouth? This is not that kind of sword. This is what was mentioned over there. What is it that comes out of a person's mouth? Words. And what type of words is it that Jesus says he's the source of? I am the way and the truth. When Jesus speaks, he always speaks truth. Truth. And thus, Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates into the dividing of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So then, putting it all together for me, tell me, how is the sword, the word, the truth, the fire, all connected, and how is it that that results in the destruction of the wicked? Short of the spirit. Yeah, how does it connect? Walk me through it. The first stage of it's played out all the time in mission stories that we read about. Some child needs to go to school or whatever, they accept the Adventist message, Christianity, and then they're at odds with their family. That's that's the sword. They, they receive the truth, they start living that way, and then all of a sudden the dad or the mom don't want anything. Okay, so we're talking now how the sword severs family member from family member. Okay, I got that. Yeah, that's good. How, how is it, though, that, that the sword, the fire, um, and so forth result in the destruction? It says they're killed by the sword that comes out of his mouth. How does that work? The wicked in the end, way in the back. This is my thought. I was just thinking about how it kills the wicked, whether the wicked end up being eternally alive or whether the wicked end up perishing, because the sword of truth, when you receive that truth, will you know, it will illuminate darkness and you either receive that and begin to change and are healed or you keep rejecting it and refusing it and then someday when you really are confronted with it it's just too much for your mind okay okay there's a there's a bible text uh, go ahead russell i want to throw a text at you that will support let me throw this text at it right here and then russell this is out of second thessalonians 2 10 see if this bears in on our question truth sword fire destruction of the wicked it says the wicked are destroyed because they did not love the truth and left be saved. Okay, go ahead, Russell. I was going to reference the Hosea text. You know, when, when Hosea is talking to Israel and God is speaking through them, your nation is destroyed because of a lack of knowledge, a lack of knowledge of the truth. So how is it then at the end? Yes, Russell. I like the quote that says, um, we are punished by our sins, not for them. Ooh, I like this. We're getting closer. Yes. Sin. exist in the presence. So, have you ever heard this statement? To sin wherever it is found, our God is a consuming fire. To sin wherever it is found. Think that through, sin. You should be thinking, what is sin made out of? Is it made out of molecules? Then combustion will not destroy sin. It's not made out of molecules. See? The whole selfish heart versus unselfish heart. Because in the end, great controversy talks about as truth, final truth is revealed, then those who were deceived turn on each other um, and start ripping and tearing at each other of, you know, 
It can be an anger factor of, you told me this and it was wrong. It can be a uh, ventilation of frustration, but not a conformed or changed heart. It's that they start attacking themselves. So destruction can come from that as well when they're confronted with <clears throat> ultimate truth, uh, however much they try to deny or ignore or um, so when Paul said, if somebody does you evil, treat them with kindness and you will heap coals of fire on their head. Was he talking combustion? No. But somehow it's, it's coals of fire. When you treat evil with kindness, it burns them somehow. Interesting. Well, let's, this is a, I love the historical documents. This was originally written in 1888, published in 1888, and then republished in 1911 in a book called The Great Controversy. Follow through with me. We're going to take it in sections and talk about it as we go through. This is in page 541. It says, God has given to man a declaration of his character and of his methods of dealing with sin. This is from ex- Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty. And then Psalms 145. All the wicked he will destroy. The transgressors shall, shall be destroyed together. The end of the wicked shall be cut off. And then going on with the paragraph. The power and authority of the divine government will be employed to put down rebellion. Yet all the manifestations of retributive justice will be perfectly consistent with the character of God as merciful, long-suffering, and benevolent being. Now think, think with me, guys. Think with me. Here's the question. How can the manifestations of retributive justice be consistent with God's character of mercy and benevolence? How do you how do you put those together? You had a hand. Well, yeah, but now if you read Friday's lesson, the last paragraph of Friday's Yeah, we're going to get there later. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we got to finish this first. Will we? Yeah, well, if we finish this, we will. If we finish this, we'll go to there. If we finish this, we'll get to there. Okay? So let's do this. How can the manifestation of retributive justice be consistent with God's character of of mercy? Which law lens are you looking through? This is the key. If one looks through an imperial dictator list of rules that is put on by an authoritarian being that has no inherent consequence, then retributive justice means the ruling authority must inflict externally imposed torment, torture, and death. And there is no harmony between mercy and grace and benevolence in doing that. But if you understand God is the builder, the creator, the designer, and life is constructed to operate in harmony with him, then we find a beautiful harmony coming forth, and it actually comes forth in the rest of this description. I don't even have to tell it to you. Just read the rest of the description. For, here's the very next sentence. God does not force the will or judgment of any. Think, think with me. Would this statement, if you believe this is true, do you believe God does not force the will of any? Or the judgment of any? Would this be true if God were to be the one who inflicts an externally imposed pain and death on those who don't follow him? If he basically has his his, uh, gun to our head saying, look, you either accept me and follow me or I will be forced to kill you. Are we still, or is he forcing and coercing now? Yeah, so, so this statement rules out this imperial Roman law idea that has infected Christianity. He takes no pleasure, next sentence, he takes no pleasure in, the, in slavish obedience. He desires that the creatures of his hands shall love him because he is worthy of love. What makes someone worthy of love? If a man is a violent abuser of his wife, will that engender love in her heart? Can God engender love with threats of eternal torment that he inflicts upon us? No, there's something wrong with that. Keep going. He would have them obey him because they have an intelligent appreciation of his wisdom, justice, and benevolence. And all who have just a just conception of these qualities will love him because they are drawn toward him in admiration of his attributes. When God is presented as a being who is the source of externally inflicted fire, torment, hell, suffering, death, do those attributes draw you to him with admiration? 
See, this is the devil's picture of God. He wants him presented this way because it, it repulses. One, uh, the same person who wrote this wrote, nothing turns more people into infidels than the doctrine of eternal burning hell. This idea that God would torture his own creatures does not engender love. The principle of kindness, mercy, love, taught and exemplified by our Savior are a transcript of the will and character of God. Isn't this good stuff? Christ declared that he taught nothing except that which he had received from the Father. So this author is telling us that what you see in the life of Christ, Christ didn't make up on his own. He didn't figure it out on his own. He is actually taking all that he's receiving from the Father and revealing it to us. The principles of the divine government are in perfect harmony with the Savior's precept, love your enemies. Remember now, this is in the context of what was said earlier, retributive justice is now being described in this process going on. How can we harmonize this idea of the principle of divine government or to love one's enemies with the idea that the wicked are tormented and tortured and die? How do you harmonize that? Which law model do you hold? If you hold the imperial law model, there's no harmony. It's only when you have the design protocols that you find this harmony. So let's keep going. God executes justice upon the wicked for the good of the universe and even for the good of those upon whom his judgments are visited. He would make them happy if he could do so in accordance with the laws of his government and in the justice of his character. He surrounds them with tokens of love. He grants them knowledge of his law and follows them with the offers of mercy, but they despise his love, make void his law, and reject his mercy. While constantly receiving his gifts, they dishonor the giver. They hate God because they know that he abhors their sin. The Lord bears long with their perversity, but the decisive hour will come at last when their destiny is to be decided. Will he then change these, chain these rebels to his side? Will he force them to do his will? Do you notice how this idea of force is being used? It's not, will he punish them with force? Will he chain them to his side and hold them in his presence? Those who have chosen Satan as their leader have been controlled by his power are not prepared to enter the presence of God. Pride, deception, licentiousness, cruelty have become fixed in their characters. Can they enter heaven to dwell forever with those who are despised and hated on earth? With those who they despise and hate on earth? Truth will never be agreeable to a liar. Meekness will not satisfy self-esteem and pride. Purity is not acceptable to the corrupt. Disinterested love does not appear attractive to the selfish. What source of enjoyment could heaven offer to those who are wholly absorbed in earthly and selfish interests? Now, pause. What is being described here? A natural process. Do you understand? Their choices are transforming them. This is natural results of one's, you know, the sowing and reaping law. You reap what you sow in your character. Could those whose lives have been spent in rebellion against God suddenly be transported to heaven and witness the high and holy state of perfection that ever exists there? Every soul filled with love, every countenance beaming with joy and rapturing music and melodious strains rising in honor of God and the Lamb, and ceaseless streams of light flowing upon the redeemed from the face of him who sits on the throne, could those whose hearts are filled with hatred of God, of truth and holiness, mingle with the heavenly throng and join their songs of praise? Could they endure the glory of God and the Lamb? No, no. Why not? What is the preventative reason Is God's attitude against them? Is he unwilling to have them there? Is he putting up some barrier? What prevents them from enjoying this? They have made themselves terminal. Yes, there's something wrong in them. This is not a barrier that originates with God. So continuing on, years of probation were granted them that they might form characters for heaven, but they have never trained the mind to love purity. They have never learned the language of heaven, and now it is too late. A life of rebellion against God has unfitted them for heaven. Its purity, holiness, and peace would be torture to them. The glory of God would be a consuming fire. Why are they tortured? An infliction? Something God is, is doing to them? Choice. The glory to the God is described as what? A consuming fire. Is it God or unremedied sin that causes their torment? Continue on. They would long to flee from that holy place. They would welcome, notice, they would welcome destruction that they might be hidden from him, from the face of him who died to redeem them. The destiny of the wicked is fixed by their own choice. 
Their exclusion from heaven is voluntary with themselves. Notice that. They don't want to be there. They want to be gone. And just and merciful on the part of God. Who fixes and determines the end of the wicked? Themselves. It is not decided in a courtroom in heaven. There isn't evidence presented. There isn't record books that are gone over and a, and a, and a weight of decision made on who and who has accepted a payment and who hasn't. It is the actual condition of the character of the person themselves that determines which side they're going to be on. In this last sentence, like the waters of the flood, the fires of that great day declare God's verdict that the wicked are incurable. Why are the wicked lost? Because God doesn't want to save them? Why is a gangrenous foot amputated? Because doctors don't want to save it? God's verdict is they're incurable. Does that mean that God's verdict causes it to be so? Is God's verdict the cause of their condition, the cause that they die? The typical judicial presentation of the judgment is that God's judgment is what determines the outcome. We will sit, God will sit in judgment, and God will make a judgment about us, and that judgment will be deterministic of what happens to us. It's a lie. God does make a judgment. This person calls it a verdict. I call it a diagnosis. He diagnoses accurately the condition of every being. And some have accepted him, opened the heart, been restored and renewed, are harmony with him. Some have so destroyed within them the faculties that respond to love and truth that they're terminal and beyond healing. And there's a text in Hosea where we see this. God says through Hosea, Ephraim is tied to his idols. Let him go. There's a diagnosis, a judgment. His heart is tied. He can't, can't be loosened from him. Let, let him go. Let him go. So then, put all this together, what does it mean that Christ brought a sword? A sword to do what? A sword of what? A sword of truth to enter into our hearts and minds, to enter our hearts, a sword of truth, and I want to say in a sword with the other edge, it's a two-edged sword, one edge is truth, the other edge is love. It's truth and love. The two edges of the sword, love to cut through the selfishness, truth to cut through the lies in the heart, to free us from both of those elements that tie us, the lies and distortions we believe and the fears and insecurities that we hold. The sword of truth and love. And then when we turn to truth and love and family members who still are living in fear and selfishness and lies, there's division that happens. And so God's sword is dissecting. Dissecting the heart. The Bible calls it circumcision of the heart by the Spirit and dissecting people out of dysfunctional circumstances and relationships for their healing and restoration. Then we want to jump to Friday in our last five minutes and look at the paragraph. Both paragraphs? You want to read them both? Fine. Okay. Friday's lesson. This comes out of the same book, Great Controversy 672. Fire comes down from God out of heaven. The earth is broken up. The weapons concealed in the depths are drawn forth. Devouring flames burst from every yawning chasm. The very rocks are on fire. The day that has come that shall burn as an oven. The elements melt in fervent heat. And the earth also uh, and works of their, therein are burned up. The earth's surface seems to be molten mass. A vast seething lake of fire. It is the time of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. The day of the Lord's vengeance and the year of recompense of the controversy with Zion. The wicked receive their recompense in the earth. They shall be stubble, and the day cometh that shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. Some are destroyed in a moment, while others suffer many days. All are punished according to their deeds. Yes, in the back. One of our listeners said, um, so the choice that we make, the judgment that we decide to live, is the judgment that God gives us. In other words, we make the decision whether we want to live or die. And didn't Jesus say, judge not that you be not judged, for the same measure you judge others will be judged against you? That's exactly right. When we judge others, we're actually showing the, the attitudes of our own heart and character. Are we merciful, kind, gracious, forgiving, or are we arbitrary, punitive, and self-centered? Yes, our own characters are revealed by what we do. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's exactly right. So back to the quote. What does it mean? Some are destroyed in a moment while others suffer many days. Yep. How do we understand it? This is one of those classic places where they merge two different things happening at the same time. 
There's two different kinds of fire described here. There's two different kinds of fire, and if you're not discerning, you won't, you won't see it, and you'll get confused. The Bible actually talks about two different kinds of fire. All through Scripture, when it says in um, Isaiah 33, verse 14, the sinners in Zion are terrified, trembling, grips the godless. Who can dwell with the consuming fire? Who can dwell with the eternal burning? Next, verse 15. He who walks righteously and keeps his hands away from murder, bribes, and extortion spends eternity in that fire, not the wicked. And you go through your whole scripture, starting in Exodus and all the way through, God comes to Moses at the bush, it burns, but it doesn't get consumed. Sinai is on fire, but it doesn't melt down. The t- priests can't enter the temple the day of its dedication because God's fiery presence is too bright. Lucifer walks among the fiery stones of God's presence. Uh, Ancient of Days takes his throne and f- rivers of fire come out before him and 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands stand in this fire. Uh, Hebrews 12.29, our God is a consuming fire. Revelation chapter 22, the new heavens and the new earth don't need a sun to light it because God's presence is his light. The lives of the devil is the place you don't want to go and the place you don't want to be is the place of eternal burning and consuming fire and that place is God's very presence. The righteous are transformed and will radiate as Moses coming down off the mountain after 40 days in God's presence, still in a mortal fallen body, his face is starting to, to fire. He's got radiation, he's got, not radiation, but he's radiating light of God's glory coming from his presence. And what did the sinners do when they saw it, the children of Israel? They wanted to cover up because, did Moses have third degree burns? Did his whiskers get burned off? No, it caused them agony and suffering of conscience and psyche. They couldn't tolerate the heavenly light in their guilty conscience. It was painful to them. So he asked them to, to cover it. And then um, in Leviticus, it tells about Nadab and Abihu who walk into the sanctuary with unauthorized fire. And it says, fire came out from the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Next verse. The cousins are sent in, and it says they drug them out, still in their tunics. Now, if I hit you with a flamethrower and burn you till you die, will you still be in your clothes when I'm done? No, this is not the fire of combustion. This is the fire that consumes sin. Sin is not made out of molecules. Sin has two root elements to it. One, lies. Satan is the father of lies. And what is it that consumes a lie? Truth and selfishness. And what is it that destroys selfishness? Love. And the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth and love. And at Pentecost, when the spirit of truth and love fell, they saw tongues of fire. Fork tongues, split tongues. In other words, the, the fire of truth and the fire of love, just like the two-edged sword, fell. And no one got burned. The building didn't collapse. But what was burned out was division and discord. And they came into a unity as they were renewed in the spirit. And so there is the fire of God's presence that will burn into the psyches of of men, and those who have lived in darkness will be agonized and tormented by the reality of their own unhealed condition. The child molester who molested their own kid and never dealt with it on this earth under God's grace will come face to face on that day with the truth of who they are in character and the full knowledge of the pain and suffering that they called others. They can't deny, they can't hide from it when they're in the source of all truth anymore. And it will cause such horrible agony and suffering and some will be consumed instantly because that's all there is others will fight on and on and on because it says in romans that they pile up wrath for the day of wrath how do we pile up wrath well when we sin our minds naturally god-given design convict us of wrongdoing Uh, guilt appropriate guilt for wrongdoing is like pain when you touch a hot stove the hot stove you feel pain it's designed to have you pull your hand back and stop the damage guilt by god is designed when you deviate from his design morally and you commit sin that guilt is to convict you so you'll stop but when people get guilt we don't like it there's two ways to avoid it one way is repentance and and restoration the other way is denial and distortion it wasn't me it was the woman you gave me i didn't do anything wrong i'm perfectly right in what i did and then Every every conviction that we deny and distort, we go on to more, and we deny and distort, 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 and we're piling up wrath for the day of wrath. And then the day that the Lord comes, our lies and distortions can no longer hide us from the reality of who we really are. The truth burns through. And the more lies we piled up, the longer it takes the truth to burn through. And some are days in that fire, agonizing as the truth burns into their minds. And then there's a point in time when they're all dead. And then there's another fire that Scripture describes. The elements burn in the fervent heat. There is stubble and they burn up. And that is the fire when the earth is renewed and made new and all the the, the remnants and traces of sin on this planet are wiped out. And you see both of them merge in this passage. Malachi merges them together as well. Uh, When he talks about the Son of Righteousness rising with healing in his wings. 
but then there's a fire that comes, and, uh, and it's quoted partly here in this text that consumes things. And one other just idea to throw in on this idea, when in the Old Testament sur- sanctuary service did they ever burn an animal alive? Never did. They only burn them when they're dead. Okay, the, 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 the fires of truth and love are what consume sin, and then when the individuals are no longer alive, the bodies are consumed by fires of combustion. This is my view anyway. So, Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much because we can see in this, we can have harmony. We can have harmony through a God of grace who doesn't inflict anything. We can have harmony with your law that can never change, the design protocols for life. We can have harmony with the, with the descriptions in Scripture that talk about a terrible time of agony and suffering and torment and gnashing of teeth, but not as at your hand, Lord. And we can look and we can believe that at that day, you will not be smiling, but you will be crying as so many of your children are suffering and, and dying. Lord, we pray that you will give us wisdom and discernment and change, change our lives, circumcise our hearts, write the law of love upon our hearts and minds, and give us the ability to go out and represent you rightly so that so many who are living in, in fear of punishment or in hope of a reward but don't really understand the beauty of your kingdom will be won back and, and set free from their fears into a true kingdom of your, your love. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.